I invite you to turn with me to Second Peter, chapter one. Second Peter one, we will look at verses sixteen through twenty one this evening. Let us now give our attention to God's infallible word. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns, And the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, may we give attention only by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Spirit indwelling us to this prophetic word, more fully confirmed. We bless you and praise you that you have spoken, not only that you have spoken, but that you have spoken the gospel, a word of grace and out of wrath as we deserve. So work in us, Heavenly Father, who is pleasing in your sight. Enable us to put the sin that so easily besets us to death in the power of the Spirit, wielding this spiritual sword. And may this word bear fruit in our hearts to a great abundance for your glory. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This passage is a classic on the doctrine of Scripture. That along with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. In the Senior High Christian Education Hour for the past few months, we've been going over the doctrine of Scripture. And I would encourage you, if you have any questions or reservations about what the Bible is, I'd be more than happy to talk to you and recommend that one of the Senior High youth talk to you about the doctrine of Scripture. I'd be more than happy to do that. Peter and Paul in these passages point out that the Bible is God's Word at every point. In Paul's words, All Scripture is God-breathed. The Bible in its entirety comes from God. There is no part of the Bible that is not given by God. And because it is given by God, it is reliable and it is profitable. It is true to say in both directions that the Bible is God's Word and that God's Word is the Bible. Those two things match up perfectly. Both are true and identical. Well, Peter at this point asserts this to disprove the false teachers of the day. 
You'll recall that these false teachers had been coming up within the ranks of the church, polluting the church at this point, saying that, well, since we all expected that Christ would return in this generation, and he hasn't done so, he's not going to at all. And because there's not going to be a final judgment for us to have to give account for our deeds, we can live however we please. Don't listen to Peter and the apostles. Live however you want. You will not have to give account of your deeds on the last day. And Peter uses this apologetic from God's word to disprove the false teachers. This isn't just a proof text about what the Bible is, however. That is true, but it's more than that. Peter's apologetic about God's word comes in the context of his account of the transfiguration of Jesus. And that's our first point this evening, is the apostolic testimony of the transfiguration. You see in verse 16 there, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. No myths. A myth is something that is false, obviously. But in this context, a myth is something that is intended to manipulate. Perhaps the false teachers were accusing Peter of making things up, making up a gospel about a Messiah who would come as man, as the God-man, and who would return at the end of the age for a final judgment. And at that final judgment, you have to give account of your deeds, whether good or evil. So Peter's making this up. It's a cleverly devised myth, and it's just intended to morally manipulate you into a life of rigid morality. But the false teachers say, you don't have to believe that. You can live however you please. Peter is making things up to get moral control on Christians. So Peter is bringing this up to say to the false teachers, the gospel is not a myth. I'm not making this up. I saw Jesus transfigured. John saw him. James saw him. We are not making this up. In fact, it is you who are making things up. You are the inventors of cleverly devised myths because you love the darkness rather than the light. You call evil good and good evil. The apostolic witness to Christ and the fulfillment of Scripture in the fullness of time is not myth, it is fact. Peter's apostolic report of Christ's power and first coming is eyewitness testimony, not something he heard through the grapevine, something he saw with his own eyes. He's not making things up. He's not trying to manipulate Christians into morality. Peter's saying, I saw Jesus. I was his disciple, after all. I saw his power. This is similar to Paul's account of the resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. The death and resurrection of Christ, Paul says there, is central to the gospel. I thought you Corinthians accepted it and hope that you still walk in it. Christ died according to the scriptures. He was raised according to the scriptures. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And then he appeared to me. These things did not happen in private. These things are not something you need to take by blind faith. These things happened in history. Christ has made himself known. He has revealed himself. It is not a clever story. It is gospel truth. In verses 16 and 17... This apostolic witness, in particular, is an eyewitness of his majesty, a reference to the transfiguration of Christ. At that transfiguration event, Jesus goes up the mount with Peter and James and John. 
He didn't go up by himself and then tell the disciples to take his word for it. He established his testimony on the basis of two or three witnesses. At that event, Jesus transformed into the radiant likeness of the glory. His appearance became dazzling white, like the sun. And as one of the gospel writers put it, you cannot bleach clothes that white. His appearance was dazzling white. In that transfiguration, there is a vertical reference and a horizontal one. The vertical reference is a glimpse of the heavenly glory of the Son that he has with the Father and the Spirit. More importantly, the horizontal reference. In the transfiguration, we get a glimpse of the exaltation glory of Christ, which he has at his second coming. A brief glimpse of his second coming glory intruded into this present evil age for a brief moment. A foresight of his future glory. So Peter is bringing this up to say, the glory of the transfiguration, which I saw with James and John, the glory of the transfiguration is proof of the second coming. You false teachers cannot say that there is no future judgment. You cannot be polluting these believers to think they can live however they want, never needing to give account for their deeds, because I've seen the future glory of Christ revealed before my eyes. That transfiguration glory is proof and guarantee that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. False teachers, I've already seen the end-time glory of Christ. You can't convince me that there is no second coming. Just because it's delayed a little longer than you thought it would be doesn't mean it's not going to happen. I've already seen it happen, as it were. I'm not the one following the myths. You are. Verse 17 when he received honor and glory from God the Father. It's a reference to Christ's exalted status as the ultimate prophet of God, his radiance that he would permanently have in his resurrection from the dead and that he would manifest in his second coming. He had it briefly in that transfiguration moment. He would have it permanently in his resurrection from the dead, and he would display it perfectly in his second coming. It's like when Paul talks about in Romans 1, 3, and 4 that Jesus Christ was descended according to the flesh, the seed of David, and was declared to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness according to his resurrection from the dead. That phrase there, the Son of God in power. When was Jesus, or rather, when was the Son the Son of God? Always. There never was when he was not the Son of God. But when did he become the Son of God in power? According to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, he became what he was not in his human nature, endowed with the spirit above measure, the Son of God in power. And so briefly, Peter, James, and John saw that glory before the resurrection, that glory that Christ would have permanently in his resurrection, that he would manifest perfectly in his second coming. Verse 17, Peter makes reference to the majestic glory Another name for God himself, the majestic glory. And that majestic glory revealed his good pleasure in his son. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The fulfillment of Isaiah 42.1, where God refers to his servant, in whom my soul delights. God showed that his son has divine authority as prophet and as judge. Remember the two people that Jesus was speaking to. On the Mount of Transfiguration, to Moses and Elijah. 
And God appears saying, not you, Moses, not you, Elijah. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And remember what Peter doesn't include here. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. But all three synoptics add to that, listen to him. Listen to him. He has the authority. He has greater authority than Moses and Elijah. He is a mediator of a better covenant. He reveals God better than any prophet because he himself is God, unlike those other prophets. Listen to him. This is key to remember because that is a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.15. There Moses says to the people, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Mark Jones points out in his book, Knowing Christ, that God answered that prayer, answered that prophecy of Moses, and allowed Moses to see it with his own eyes on the Mount of Transfiguration. It happened after he died, but he still had got to see it with his own eyes. Jesus is greater than Moses, greater than Elijah. His glory surpasses them like the sun surpasses the glory of the moon. Alexander Nisbet has a great discussion of this phrase, of, of God's word to Jesus, that this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased in his commentary. And he suggests that this goes both directions. It's said by God to sinners, and it's said by sinners to God. He says, as the Father speaks of Christ to sinners, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. So sinners should answer back again to God in their hearts. Christ is our beloved Redeemer, in whom we are well pleased. Let the Father hear him for us. Let every believing heart be convinced that the Father does hear the Son on behalf of his people. Verse 18, Peter goes on, We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven. We heard it. There were three of us there, James, John, and I. We saw his glory. We saw his glory as the end-time judge for a brief moment. We heard God speak from heaven regarding his Son. We heard it with our own ears. We were there. We saw the revelation of Christ's glory. We saw the scriptures fulfilled. What Moses said in Deuteronomy 18 came to fulfillment before our eyes. The greater than Moses was right there. This is not myth. This is not myth intended to manipulate you into morality. It is the fulfillment of the prophetic word. And that leads us to our second point. Verses 19 to 21, the fulfillment of the prophetic word. Verse 19, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That is a great translation. The apostolic testimony confirms the prophetic word. It is the fulfillment of that word. And the other direction, the prophetic word is confirming of the apostolic testimony. Because the apostolic testimony confirms what the prophetic word said in the transfiguration, fulfilling Deuteronomy 18.15. In that sense, the prophetic word is more fully confirmed. It's just like when, when Paul talks about Jesus, Jesus becoming the Son of God in power in his resurrection. He was always the Son of God, but he wasn't the Son of God in power until his resurrection. 
Similar thing here. The prophetic word was always reliable. It was always confirmed because it was God's word. But it was more fully confirmed when Christ's glory was manifest in the transfiguration, fulfilling the scriptures. You see the difference? Prophetic word here is not just a reference to the prophetic sections of the Old Testament, a few prophecies here and there, as if there was part as, as if there was a part of the Bible that did not speak of the Messiah to come. Prophetic word is merely a synecdoche for the Old Testament. You might be familiar with what a, what a synecdoche is from English class. It's a part standing for the whole. I don't remember if I said these words verbatim, but I do remember asking my future father-in-law for his daughter's hand in marriage. I'm glad he didn't give me just her hand. <laughs> he gave me the whole thing. Hired hands, not just the hands of day workers. Head of cattle, better be the whole cow, not just the head. It's a part standing for the whole. Prophetic word stands for the entire Old Testament, law, prophets, and writings. And in that sense, it also emphasizes that the entire Old Testament is prophetic, looking forward to the fulfillment in Christ. Literally, what Peter is saying here can be translated We possess the prophetic word, the Old Testament, as something that is now all the more reliable. Always was reliable, now all the more so, because it's been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the prophecies of God are yes and amen in Christ, all of them. This prophetic word is now more certain because it's been fulfilled in history, and that is key. It's always been certain, now more so because of its fulfillment. I try to hammer this home to emphasize that the fulfillment aspect of Scripture is what Peter is saying at this point. He has not yet gotten into what the Bible is. He's getting there, but he's not there yet. Some, even in the Reformed tradition, take what Peter is saying here to say, Well, I'm telling you about seeing the transfiguration. I've told you that I heard God's voice born from heaven, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. But the Bible's more certain than what I saw and heard, so go read that. If you don't take my word for it, then read about it yourself. In fact, the Bible's more reliable than a voice born from heaven. That is exactly what Peter is not saying. That would destroy his argument here. That is absolutely not what he is saying. What if he had been saying that? What if he said, don't take my word for it, read the Bible? Any good Jew would say, yeah, you're right. You're right, Peter. Jesus is not the Messiah, but I'm going to read the Bible and not believe you. I'm still looking for the Messiah to come. Do you see how that would destroy what Peter is saying here? He's saying what the Bible says has been fulfilled in history. And I have apostolic eyewitness testimony to it. And Christ has raised me up as his ambassador to proclaim that gospel to the nations. So at this point in the paragraph, Peter is putting relatively more importance on his eyewitness testimony. He's saying it's confirmed by the prophetic word, and then it confirms the prophetic word. But it has to have come about in history. We can't just read the Old Testament and say, well, that's more important than what the apostles said. 
If what the Bible says was not confirmed by the apostolic eyewitness, we're still looking for the coming of the Messiah. So that is what Peter is saying here. He's establishing that Christ will surely return as Savior and Judge because he saw his exalted glory manifest in the transfiguration. And in that sense, the prophetic word is more fully confirmed. And so Peter is saying to these false teachers, pay attention. You cannot say that there's no second coming, that there's no final judgment at which you will give account for your deeds. I already know there's going to be a second coming because I saw the second coming glory of Jesus for a brief moment. You're not going to convince me that I'm the one who's giving cleverly devised myths. You are doing that. The transfiguration is proof of the second coming. You cannot go living in sin. You will do well to pay attention to this prophetic word. Present, not future. Pay attention to it now, not one day down the road. Hold your mind onto it. Give heed to it. Pay attention to it in that way. You will do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place. That is a continual shining. Very familiar verse from Psalm 119, but bears to be repeated. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So what if you don't have the word as your lamp and light? You are in darkness. If you think of or do or pursue anything without the light of the word, you are in darkness. John 3.19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Until the day dawns, the day, the day of the Lord, that great and terrible day of the Lord, the second coming. And this imagery of the day of judgment is at times that of sunrise, bringing the light of God's glory. Seen first of all in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve break covenant with God. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as some translations put it, God was walking in the cool of the day, giving the idea that there's, there's a daily constitutional that God went on in the Garden of Eden. Better translated, the spirit of the day. The first day of the Lord where he appeared in judgment summoning Adam and Eve to give account for their evil deeds, answering, where are you and why have you broken covenant? That is, that is the dawning of the day spoken of here. The morning star rises in your hearts. The morning star is probably a reference to Numbers 24, where there's reference to a star coming out of Jacob, a reference to the Messiah, more clearly seen in Revelation 22. Turn, please turn with me to Revelation 22. Pick up at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus... 
have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Peter references the dawning of the morning star that's rising in your hearts, Christ coming as judge at the last day. Christ who indwells us by faith, indwelling us by, by his spirit. The morning star will rise in our hearts on that, on that last day. And we will see him and be conf- so perfectly conformed to his image as to be glorified. Now Peter moves from this fulfillment of scripture. What he's seen in the transfiguration, guarantee of the second coming and the glory of Christ coming as judge. And that, and that reference to the end time revelation of his glory. Now moving to the reliability and the origin of Scripture. Scripture is reliable because it is of divine origin. He talks of no prophecy, verse 20, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Sometimes read to to mean that you cannot read the Bible by yourself and come up with your own interpretation. You cannot come up with your own meaning of the text. Read it in the concert of other believers. There's truth in that. There's a grain of truth there. And that's true as far as it goes. But it doesn't go far enough. And that's not exactly what Peter is referring to here. He's referring to the origin of Scripture. Scripture does not come from someone's own interpretation. That is to say, the Bible is not a history of religion. It's not a human investigation into religious things. It's not a devotional journal of the prophets. It's not the recording of a religious guru. The Bible does not owe its ultimate origin to man, but to God. In Paul's terms, all Scripture is God-breathed. Paul doesn't even have in view the human authors at that point. It is God-breathed, not God and man-breathed. Only God-breathed. Scripture is not brought forth by the whim of any human writer. No human author took the initiative in producing Scripture. The Psalms are not the reflections and devotional journal of David and Asaph and Moses and others, their devotional life with the Lord. They are God-breathed songs. Verse 21, Peter makes reference to men of God being carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word carried along is also used in Acts 27 when Paul is in the ship and the ship was driven along. Obviously, in those times, they did not have ships that were self-powered, so the ship had to be driven along by the wind. In a similar way, men of God spoke when they were driven along, carried along by the Spirit. God takes the initiative. No prophet spoke, no apostle spoke, unless he was carried by God to do so. And that makes the Bible God's speech, not man's speech. So we must appreciate that the priority here is upon God's production of Scripture and not man's involvement. The Bible has divine authority. It is only God's Word, and man's involvement in it is of secondary, even negated, importance. Gerhardus Voss, in in referencing how the book of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament, he says, with reference to Hebrews quoting Scripture, So vivid is the realization of this supreme fact of the direct divine authorship of Scripture 
that what we call the secondary authors, the writers of the biblical books, are scarcely ever mentioned. Think of how that transpires in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews even seems to suggest that it's relatively unimportant who the secondary authors are. Think of Hebrews 2, when he quotes Psalm 8. He introduces that saying, It has been testified somewhere. And we would say, well, wait, isn't Psalm 8 a psalm of David? Didn't David write Psalm 8? Author of Hebrews says, not interested. It's God's word. It has been testified somewhere. God said it. That's what matters. Or later in Hebrews 4, he references Genesis 2 about the Sabbath. And he introduces that reference saying, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. No need to mention the reference here. The point is that God said it. Author of Hebrews might fail an English Bible exam, but his intent is, is clear. God wrote these things. Human author, not important here. The boss goes on to say that the revelation in the Son, revelation in Christ, is superior to that in prophets and angels. Because as the Son of God, Christ is the effulgence of the divine glory, the express image of the divine substance in no way differing from God himself, so that to hear Christ's voice is to hear in the most literal sense God's own voice and to come into direct touch with the divine life expressing itself in the divine word. You see the importance of stressing the primacy of God's involvement in producing scripture. Nevertheless, God did not verbally dictate the Bible. He used human instruments, as Peter references in verse 21. Men spoke from God. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit, but men spoke. The human instruments are subordinate to the divine speaker, but the divine speaker used human instruments. It has to be both. God used the full personality, education, experiences, upbringing of all his prophets and apostles. Such that if John wrote Romans, it would have been different, and it would still be Romans. This gets at the distinction between organic inspiration and the dictation view of inspiration. God did not use the prophets as puppets, merely uttering his words through them while the prophets were totally passive. He used their full personalities. He used their, their full humanity. Even if they weren't conscious of what was going on, he used them. And what they said was God's word. Dr. Gaffin has a great way to thread this needle, as he usually does. Talking about the organic versus dictation view of inspiration. Affirming that the Bible is not dictated word for word. God used the prophets in their full personality. But the result... What you and I have now, the completed canon, the result is as if the Bible were dictated because it is word for word exactly as God wishes to say it because it is his word. In closing, I will read to you a poem by George Herbert, his Holy Scriptures number two. as an illustration of, the, of a believer glorying in having God's word. 
Oh, that I knew how all thy lights combine and the configurations of their glory, seeing not only how each verse doth shine, but all the constellations of the story. This verse marks that, and both do make a motion unto a third, that ten leaves off doth lie. Then as dispersed herbs do watch a potion, these three make up some Christian's destiny. Such are thy secrets, which my life makes good, and comments on thee. For in everything thy words do find me out, and parallels bring, and in another make me understood. Stars are poor books, and oftentimes do miss. This book of stars lights to eternal bliss. Compared to the glory of the word, the sun is as the moon. How the word reveals the Savior, how it reveals the triune God, it makes all other revelation of God pale in comparison. As I said, this passage is a classic to talk about the doctrine of Scripture. But may we not hear these things and affirm that we denounce the liberals and their repudiation of the word, that in their opinion it is merely the words of men. Peter's exhortation here is that we have the word more fully confirmed. For that reason, pay attention to it. Don't merely esteem this book as you would, as a good American, esteem the documents of the Founding Fathers. Don't esteem this book as a Presbyterian, you would esteem the book of church order. As a believer, esteem this book as the the written word of God. And for that reason, open it up and pay attention to it. If it is not lighting your path, you are in darkness. Pay attention to it. Don't just esteem this word, read it. Because it's more fully confirmed, we should pay all the more attention to it. And God's people said...